Good evening. I'm going to double check and make sure I was not on mute. Um, it is wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I understand we're a little ahead. So that's always good for someone like me who likes to talk and to share um, and gives us a little extra time uh, for the things that we'll do collaboratively. So today, I'm the title of my topic today is Beyond Equality and Towards Equity, Guiding the Practice of Instruction to Meet the Needs of Unserved, Underserved, and Marginalized Learners. So I want to start by greeting you with these words, Kesarian Inkera, which in English means, how are the children? And I want you to think about that question for a second. But I want you to think of it not as just a question, how are your children? But I want you to think of it instead as a greeting. When I said Kesarian Inkera, it's the language of the Maasai of Tanzania and Kenya. And I always borrow their greeting to remind me of my purpose when I'm working with educators and people engaged in K-12 education. It's a reason for, or a way for me to reset our purpose in working not just in education, but focused on children of color, children of diverse languages, diverse cultures, children who are often marginalized, devalued, or thought of as deficient because of their diversity. You see, the Maasai believe that you measure the welfare of an entire community by the state of the children that are in it. Think about that. And unless all the children are well, the community is not well. As educators, um, and I know I have board members, board members, I'm wrapping you into that global label of educators. When we greet one another with that question, we reset our focus on a purpose. We set an intention for our work. And we make a shift from how we feel, what we like, or our own importance. Because normally we would say, how are you today, right? How are you feeling? So we make that shift and we focus squarely on improving our communities as a whole and improving our society. And we do so by improving the present and future state of the children that we're here to serve. So I want you to take five seconds, I'll stop talking in a few. I want you to take five seconds to get grounded and let that resonate throughout your mind, put everything else aside. How are the children? And as we share this time in this space today, I would like to ask that we virtually touch and agree on a few things. First, I do ask that you show some grace and patience in this space. Um, I am always horribly disappointed when I can't be in the same physical space with a group of folks that I'm talking to. But I am grateful for the technology that allows us to virtually gather to learn and to grow still. But I do say tech is as tech is. It is great when it works. I love technology, but I do always temper that um, with an expectation that there may be a hiccup or two. Um, and today I am coming to you from uh, beautiful 
sunny San Diego, California. I'm actually overlooking um, the San Diego Bay. Um, and that means I'm on hotel Wi-Fi. Uh, and hotel Wi-Fi often has a hiccup or two. So if I am very much out of sync, my voice with, with the way my lips are moving, just ignore me. As long as you can see the screen and the messages coming through, we're great. If it gets really bad, if someone would just put a note in the chat um, that there's a horrible delay, then I will get off camera completely and that should improve it. All right. Um, so knock wood that we have no challenges in that regard today. Secondly, I'm going to ask that you keep an open mind and keep some positive energy flowing. I ask that you stay engaged. Um, sometimes when we're talking about equity and diversity, there is some discomfort that comes up with things that are said or feelings that arise within. Because difficult topics and difficult concepts, um, when I was growing up, we'd say things that you don't discuss in polite company, right? Sometimes those prompt us to become defensive or to retreat into silence. But please don't. Be reminded of my greeting, be reminded of our intention. What we're talking about today is our children. So bring your listening and your thinking skills. I do ask that you listen with the intent to understand. We have a little over an hour, which I'm excited about because we're ahead of schedule. Um, all of the Q&A will be at the end. Very often, I've anticipated a lot of the questions that come up, and it'll get answered in the course of the presentation. But when you have a question, put it in that Q&A. You have, if you look at your toolbar, you have a chat and you have a Q&A. Put your questions that you want me to answer during the Q&A, put that in Q&A. But we're also going to use the chat heavily, not only to communicate with one another, but there are going to be some activities where I ask you to respond in the chat. And so we wanna keep our chat clean for that. Don't get your questions confused with the chat. Um, two different spaces and I'll remind you of where we're going. I ask that you fully participate in those chats as they pop up. And then finally, I ask that you embrace cognitive humility. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, cognitive humility is the idea that our brains can be challenged and developed indefinitely. The humility part comes in the sense that we should be open to other constructs, theories, ideas that challenge our thinking when we're exposed to them, when we're exposed to new environments, places, cultures, and new thoughts. So in our time together today, we'll be focusing on just one key foundational idea as it relates to teaching and learning through a lens of equity. And you'll be learning how you can use four equity indicators to help guide instructional practice. And for those of you on school boards, how you can look at your CIS or leadership how you can look at your systems as a whole. So for this session, um, if you pre-registered, I believe you got a link to a handout. If you have that, you printed it out, great. That is your note-taking device. You just need something to write with on it. If you did not do that, don't worry. We can get that link put into the chat. I can't because I'm a little confined and restricted here, um, but uh, someone on the facilitator side, if you can get that link dropped in the chat, 
You don't need to have the handout for the session. Let me be clear. It is not required. You're not going to miss anything. Pick it up after the session is over. It may help refresh you. Or if you're taking some of this back to work in your PLCs, it'll be a good tool for you to have. You can just take notes on whatever you've got or not take notes at all, but do participate in the chat. And I would hope that you take notes because we are going to do some journaling activities. All right, so framework. Um, I always like to, you know, as we go through things, you're gonna have questions that pop up. Things are going to come in your head that are like ahas. I call those curiosities, struggles, and insights. And I'm gonna ask you to think about curiosity, struggles, and insights several times as we go through and have some journaling activities. So curiosities first up. A curiosity is can be about something that you've wondered forever. I've always wondered how, or I've always wondered why. Um, or it can be something that's newly aroused. Maybe I say something and you become curious. Jot your curiosity down. That's wanting to understand or being curious about something. Secondly, we have struggles. Sometimes we struggle with our prior knowledge where we have not been able to make sense of something. We may struggle with information that's new, maybe something that I say, and you're struggling to make sense of it. Jot those down, make note of those. And then finally, we have insights, that light bulb moment. I just learned that, right? Or now I get it, now I understand why. And we wanna keep these insights specific to this session, all right? Okay, now, if you have the handout, you'll notice, and if you are like me, you're one of those people who've gone through everything in the handout and jotted notes down already, um, you see breakouts. We are not going to have breakout sessions today. We are going to have journaling and sharing through the chat instead. So where you see that breakout icon, don't worry about the breakout, that's now a journal. But the activity that we'll do, whatever's queued up there, in this case, you see the example for meritocracy, um, we'll still be working on that same activity. So you have that content there. All right. Okay, so before we go any further, I need to know who's there, who's out there in webinar land, um, in Zoom land that I can't see uh, or hear, which means I can't read your faces. I always think, I have to think of myself as being like a, a, a news anchor, right? That I'm talking into this monitor to this audience of thousands or I can see 61 other people. So this is our first chat, pop that chat window open. And I want you to introduce yourself. Careful, don't get started. Don't, don't get ahead of me, no jackrabbits. One string of text separated by commas, your name, comma, where it is you are originally from, your hometown and state, comma, and then if you're an educator, what grade do you teach? What subject do you teach? If you're, um, or what role are you in? If you're a coach or administrator or school board member, and then the district and school that you come from. So I'm gonna watch the chat for a second. I know there are people out there. All right. Indianapolis, here we go. I love it when it starts to roll. Let's see where everybody's from, if I can keep my chat from running away from me. Kings Local, Cincinnati, Akron. I know a couple of people in Akron. Little Miami, I never heard of Little Miami before. 
New Concord, awesome, good. We've got a variety of folks. Uh oh, I always worry when I see the attorneys on the call. I'll be good, I'll be good. Hello, Toledo. A teacher and board member, that's diversity. Newish board member. All right, keep those coming. When I have you journal, this is what I do. I go back and look through the chat to see what I've missed. So don't skip, please do engage and let me know where everyone is from. Most everything that I'm sharing with you today comes from my book, Affecting Change for Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Learners, the second edition. Um, it's available online and in bookstores worldwide. But if you're thinking of purchasing for a, a group, whether it's you know all teachers in your district, which of course I would love, or just a small group for book study, there is a local Ohio sales rep. Her information is in the handout and I'll make sure, um, matter of fact, it's on the last slide, which I'll have up for a little while so you won't miss who she is. So you'll have that information. So if you're looking out, I may reference, this comes directly from the book or you'll see some exemplars that are up, but that's where it comes from. So you're not gonna miss the information. Oops, no, it's not done here. Um, so the foundational idea that we're talking about today is that to believe as a nation in a free public education means that the nation should demand fair and equitable treatment of all children, particularly those children traditionally marginalized, disenfranchised, unserved, and underserved. And I want you to hold on to that. We are gonna come back to it. I'm gonna ask you to journal on it. And I want you to make sure, we're gonna make sure that we're all on the same page with a few, what I call essential understandings. And I consider these essential understandings as things that should always be in your backpack as you journey on this path to bring equity of instruction and equality of outcomes to all learners. Now notice I said equity of instruction and equality of outcomes to all learners. So let's start by defining or getting a, a, our first essential understanding, which is equality. And equality is a very simple concept. Within quality, with equality, everyone gets the exact same thing, the same books, the same quality of teaching, the same instructional time, the same instructional resources and supports. This is without no differentiation, no scaffolding, no additional supports. Equality is like this watermelon that's being divvied up. Even if one person is starving, hasn't eaten for days, and another person just had a gourmet eight course meal, everyone will get the exact same slice. Only we're talking about this in terms of education and instruction. The second essential understanding is a simple definition of equity. Write this down. Equity is freedom from bias against or favoritism for any group. Freedom from bias against or favoritism for. 
as educators, it's about making sure that every child gets exactly what they need in order to experience academic success with instruction being free from bias against any group of learners or showing favoritism for any group of learners. And I like to keep that definition as simple as possible. I always think back to the cognitive rule of seven. We can hold seven items in our head or seven words or seven digits of a phone number. I don't know about you, but when we switched to sort of made that shift to um, everybody has a cell phone, right? You don't just have to remember the seven digits anymore. You need to know all 10, right? Because we need to know area codes when we're dealing with cell phones. And I live in Houston, Texas, so we have three area codes in the city of Houston, Texas. Real important to know all three, right? So freedom from bias against or favoritism for, that's the chunk you need to remember. Contrasted to equality, equity means not providing the exact same resources to each child. And we'll dig more deeply into that as we go on. The third item to put into your backpack is an understanding of the term comorbidity. Most of us don't connect that term with an educational journey, comorbidity, but we've heard a lot about it during COVID, right? A comorbidity is simply a marker. It's supposed to tell you something that you might not be able to see with your eyes, but it is believed that you should know for treatment because its presence impacts the outcome of that treatment. Or in the case of children in teaching and learning, the presence of that comorbidity impacts the outcome of teaching. So when you think about comorbidities in our learners, that it's that marker or those markers that label children. And unfortunately, those markers are not alterable. We can't change them. And these labels are supposed to tell us something about the child. It may be their race, their home language, their socioeconomic status, their learning ability or a learning disability. And whether or not those labels are true or whether or not those labels are accurate, these are the things that have historically impacted academic success through no fault of the child. And I always use a personal example here. So back when I was in the second grade, a little girl with pigtails, I went to a new school and I was one of four children who were of color. The rest of the school was white. There were four of us that were not white. We were all black. And the probably second day that I was there, barely time to acclimate to a new school, um, I was placed into a special classroom. Turns out it was a special education classroom. And I, I wasn't put there because I was struggling. I wasn't put there because I was behind grade level. I wasn't put there for any of those things that we tend to associate with special ed. I was definitely not a behavior problem. I was a very quiet, quiet shy child. You, you wouldn't believe that now, but I was. Every black child, all four of us in that school were in special education classrooms. So my comorbidity, the color of my skin had a significant impact on what might have been my future academic success or my learning trajectory. 
fortunately, unfortunately, I was not there for long. Unfortunately, um, I suffered a trauma that year. I saw my father shot to death. Um, and so I was moved, went to live with my mom, went to a different school. And that following year, I had the most amazing teacher, I say, in the world, because no one tops Mrs. Gowdy. So this is 1970, um, 69, 70. And Mrs. Gowdy was a white woman. And she saw something in me that they certainly did not see at that other school. Maybe she read my cum folder that it said that I was actually several years ahead of grade level. Um, but Mrs. Gowdy did something that was not common back then. This was before there was differentiated instruction. Um, and our core reading was Dick and Jane. So uh, if you remember Dick and Jane, just tell me in the chat. Dick and Jane didn't have kids that looked like me. There were no black kids in the Dick and Jane reading series. Dick and Jane had a stereotypical mother, father, Dick, Jane, and Sally, three siblings, a dog, and a cat, nuclear family. Yeah, everybody remembers. If you were around back then, you probably remember Dick and Jane. But Mrs. Gowdy recognized that Dick and Jane was not appropriate for me. And so instead of keeping me in a Dick and Jane reading group with all the other kids, um, <laughs> this part sounds bad, she sat me at a desk in the back corner of the room, and I was all by myself, but she... He gave me books that connected to me, to my lived experience, to my life story. And the first book she gave me, and that was at an appropriate level, the first book she gave me was called Negro Congressional Medal of Honor Winners. And it was this really big, thick book. And it had that plastic library, that crinkly plastic library covering on it. Anybody remember that? So when you open the book, it crinkled. And there weren't very many pictures in the book, just lots and lots and lots of words and a lot of really big words. But every picture in there was of a Black man who had won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so it reminded me of my own father and connected me to an experience, as well as set me on a trajectory of learning that I would never have gotten had I stayed at that other school in that classroom. Comorbidities. The fourth item you're going to put in your backpack is an understanding of implicit and explicit bias. And I always use my iceberg metaphor here because it makes it easier for all of us to remember the difference and this is important. So when we look at that iceberg, if we were sailing along the top of the water, we would not see this cutaway picture that we see here. We'd only see the tip of the iceberg. And the tip of the iceberg is explicit bias. These are those attitudes and beliefs that we are fully conscious of, that other people can see that we exhibit. We can self-report them. Other people can say, oh, I know that about that one because they show it all the time. The part that's above the surface. But the biggest part of an iceberg is the part that's below. And that is the implicit bias. And it's so important, it's critical that we understand this. Implicit bias are our fundamental beliefs and values, things that live deep inside of us. It's what influences our thoughts, our behaviors, our speech. And generally that happens unconsciously. And whether we want to pack those things for our journey or not, they go with us. There are things that weigh down your bag, but you cannot seem to travel without it. Implicit bias 
may color what we believe a child may need based on the way they look on the outside, based on a comorbidity, based on the way that they talk. Implicit bias influences how you perceive or thought about the colors of those eggs a couple of screens ago or the little boy in the last slide. It's what influenced the people in that school that put me in a sped room because of the color of my skin. We all have bias. Bias is a normal psychological phenomenon and we should not be afraid to talk about them or name them. And so for a little more lighthearted sense, I always name one of my own implicit biases or now former implicit bias because I see it, I recognize it and other people will see it in me as well. But whatever was deep seated in my little brain that always preferred, always had me prefer to teach learners that had multiple comorbidities. So it was like, give me the problem children, give me the discipline problems, give me those little knot headed boys that just don't wanna listen. Give me the children that struggle to read or have historically struggled to learn how to read in the classroom. Give them to me, give me the ELs. Give me the, not just ELs, but the students who just got here who don't speak a lick of English. Give them to me in my sixth grade classroom that was extraordinarily diverse because I want to work with them. I don't know why, or I didn't know why at the time, but I can name that now. So it's not implicit. Like some implicit biases, that one was harmless. In fact, it was helpful. But many times implicit bias is negative and it impacts the well-being of children. And when that happens, we have to call it out. We have to name it. We have to make space to address it. So I'm going to ask you now first journal. Your task is to examine what's in your backpack or like they say on the Capital One commercial, what's in your wallet? What are your curiosity, struggles, and insights around that foundational idea of demanding fair and equitable? treatment for all children. What's in your backpack about the four key equity indicators of equality, equity, comorbid equity indicators? No, our foundational understandings, I haven't told you the equity indicators yet, our foundational understandings about equality, equity, comorbidities, and implicit and explicit bias. Are these concepts that you understand the value that you carry with you throughout planning and delivering or evaluating instruction. I'm gonna give you one minute on the timer on screen and then we'll come back. Okay, if you would, please, I know that's never enough time, but I just want to get you started thinking. Again, these are things you can take back um, to your PLCs or things that you can journal on and reflect on later. Um, but if you would, in the chat, 
a curiosity, a struggle, or an insight from that thought exercise, just on what we've done so far. Drop that in the chat, and I'll give you about 30 seconds. Do we have a very shy group today? Thank you, Vela King. I struggle with understanding all my implicit bias because I don't always see them in myself. You are not alone. Most people do. Most people do. Um, how to meet the needs of so many students. That's why we have professional learning. Thank you for joining us today. Um, ingrained in equality, more understanding of equity. You're going to get a little bit more today and hopefully enough to, um, if nothing else, whet your appetite to demand more. I'd love to come and visit you. Mindful of their own implicit biases. That's a lot of hard work. Um, it's work that takes a lot of time and commitment, um, something that I love doing um, in working with systems. How to make sure everyone can have access to an equal piece of pie. Hmm. I love this curiosity. Thank you, Mark. How was I impacted in my youth by comorbidities? And how many of our staff members embrace and understand explicit and implicit bias? This is why I have lots of work to do. So keep those coming. Um, I did not share before, but one of the things I do, I will always do um, because, you know, unless we have several hours, I can't go through everything in the chat, but I do read the entire chat generally after a session. And a lot of times there'll be something that someone writes in there that becomes inspiration um, for a magazine article, journal article, um, a podcast. Um, I do generally a weekly blog, um, but that's where my ideas and inspirations come from. And I do always name the person who gave me the inspiration. So keep those coming. I need something to write about. And some of these we'll address as we go. All right, our four equity indicators, here we go. Um, as you think about your understandings of equality and equity, right? Someone just asked this, I, need, I struggle to understand more about equity. It's easy to measure equality, right? Because we know we're just looking to make sure everybody has the same thing. And so for decades, we have worked so hard for equality of instruction. And now we're moving towards that equity side. How do you measure equity though? And that's, it's A, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to understand and it's a little more complex when it comes to measurement. And I think that's part of the reason why it's often so misinterpreted. So I'm gonna introduce you to four equity indicators that I like to use when I look at systems and that you can use to examine your own. Now, full disclosure, I did not create these. Yes, I'm brilliant, but I'm not that brilliant. Um, these are broad concepts that are used by the an international organization, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. And they use them to measure national or a nation's commitment to education as related to economic progress and world trade. I would say I don't give a rat's fit about world trade. I do, it's important, but I'm a little less concerned about trade and much more focused on education because it impacts life trajectories and societal wellness as a whole. But in any event, four indicators you see on screen are meritocracy, standards, impartiality, and asset allocation. 
So you'll want to take notes on these. If you have the, have the handouts, you've got sort of some maze passages in there. So there are only a few words that you'll need to fill out to get the entire definition, but off we go. Our first indicator is meritocracy. And meritocracy is about power. So our guiding question when we're looking at meritocracy as an equity indicator in a system or in a classroom is who has the power? Who is able to ensure equity over access. And so here we consider how well curriculum and instruction result in equal outcomes across all grades, subjects, and offerings. In education, we often talk about providing all learners with equal access to grade level curriculum, right? And we think that's not a bad thing. We want our learners to have access to grade level curriculum. My question is, does that equal access provide equal outcomes? And that should be your question too. Where there is meritocracy, the people who hold the power provide that assurance of equity of instruction. So in this session right now, I kind of have the power. I have the power to control what you see on screen and some of what you experience as I'm presenting. I'm gonna assume that most of the people on the call, I should say everyone on the call has graduated from high school, right? Um, many of us or many of you I know have bachelor's degrees. We've got lawyers on the phone that are on the call. That means that they've got postgraduate work or post-bachelor's work. And I, I know I saw a doctor on a few people's uh, screens. So we've got some very highly educated people here. So I'm going to make a safe assumption or take a safe assumption that everyone here can read at about a 1600 Lexile. And if you're a non-educator board member that's not familiar with Lexile, it just means that you can read a certain complexity of text and understand it. So I'm going to give you on the next slide, I'm going to give you a passage to read. I'm going to give you 45 seconds to read it. That should be more than sufficient for you to read this level of Lexile and understand what's there. And then I'm going to give you a quiz. So are you ready? Eyes peeled to the screen. Here we go. Okay, I was joking about the quiz and definitely about the 45 seconds because I believe there are probably quite a few people who are struggling with that passage. Every one of you, though, has the requisite decoding skills to decipher this text. Some people may struggle more than others because it requires a very specific level of cognitive academic language proficiency in a very specific subject. And cognitive academic language proficiency, you may hear me say CALP. Those of you who have worked with emergent bilinguals know that term of CALP. Anyone who majored in any one of the nat natural sciences, if you were a biochem major, this was a piece of cake. But if you're like me and you were a liberal arts major, I was a political science major. This is a little bit tough. So when you think about meritocracy, Think about your underserved or unserved populations of learners and their access to grade level content. This is grade level content if you've graduated from high school. Think about their access to AP courses or just general education if they're emergent bilinguals or speakers of African American English. Is access 
access to grade level instruction equitable for learners who do not speak school English, for learners who are not provided instruction to bridge their home or their sociocultural language to the language of school? Uh-uh, no. And that brings me to one more essential understanding for your backpack. And that's the concept of the provision gap. And those of you who were looking at the handout were probably thinking, you skipped one. I didn't skip it. Here it is. The provision gap essentially is the difference between grade level benchmarks, what a learner should know, and each learner's demonstrated academic ability, what they have been taught, as is measured by your high stakes assessment, your state test. The provision gap is the difference between a target and our teaching, not student learning, teaching. So you're probably wondering why you're looking at a picture of an apple orchard. Well, here's why, just like my metaphor, my iceberg of bias, here's your orchard that is the provision gap. And I want you to think of instruction as an apple tree. Outcomes or student performance, that's the fruit that you see hanging from the tree. Provision, instruction, teaching is down at the root. But when you look at that picture, you can't see the roots, right? You know they're down there though, because you know a little bit of something about trees and plants. Trees have roots. And you know that the roots are what take up the nutrients, the water and the fertilizer. But if a tree is fertilized by ineffective instructional methods and culturally inappropriate curriculum or some of the other things that I discuss in the book and that we name in this session, you have roots that are a provision gap and fruit is just the showcase of that. And we measure that fruit and we call it an achievement gap. We have to focus on what we provide to our learners if we want to change what we see from our learners. If we want better fruit outcomes, we've got to give it better fertilizer instruction because it's not about what our students did or didn't learn. And it's not about learning loss because content instruction, if we teach it, if we truly teach it to mastery, it's never gonna get lost. It's what we weren't able to, or worse sometimes what we choose not to provide to our learners. And this is tightly connected to equity, implicit bias and comorbidities. So make sure that the provision gap and understanding of this is in your backpack and you're pulling it out and taking a look at that routinely. Because access doesn't mean anything if a child doesn't have the language, the calc, what you needed to read that metformin passage, that schema, broad knowledge and high level vocabulary that's required to make sense of the text that we put in front of them. Equity means that we provide our learners with instruction that results in equal outcomes, fruit, not just equal access. So quick journal time again, I'm gonna give you one more minute or one minute again, this time focusing on the indicator of meritocracy. You have three questions to think on. The guiding question, which is who has the power? 
Um, two, how does meritocracy impact teaching with the goal of equity? And three, how does meritocracy apply to learning for your unserved and underserved learners? Get your thoughts on paper. And again, I'll ask you, um, if you would, to share a, a curiosity, struggle, or insight when you finish. But let me give you one minute on the timer and stop talking. Okay, I'm going to give you another 30 seconds, if you would, a curiosity, struggle, or insight, drop that in the chat. All right, I have some really good stuff that's in the chat. I love it. And I'm going to have a great time going back through that to find content. Oh, Janie, put that in the Q&A that you just put there because I want to I want to be able to come back to that. All right, moving on though, standards is our um, next indicator, and this indicator is all about mastery. Now, sort of as I mentioned before, I define mastery as knowing something so well that it requires almost no cognitive energy to correctly process the information. Um, if I say today is Wednesday and say, so what's tomorrow, you're all going to say Thursday because we know the days of the week. If I ask you what's two plus two, you're going to say four. If I ask you directions from your home to your place of work, something that you drive every single day, you can give those to me because you have mastery of that. The guiding question about standards is who has mastery. And here we're focusing on equality of mastery. We have to consider how well curriculum and instruction result in students demonstrating mastery of content year over year, as opposed to just being in the room. This is similar to meritocracy, but remember that meritocracy is about power and control the power or control over who has access or what type of access they have. Standards, our second indicator, is about the fruit of that tree of provision. So I'm going to use reading instruction as an example. Apologies to any content area teachers, um, but everyone relies on reading to some extent or another. Yes, even in mathematics instruction. 
So if you're an educator and you're around back in 1999, you might remember Scarborough's rope. Um, and we coined the phrase, or the phrase was coined back in 1999, teaching reading is rocket science. There's a lot that has to be taught for a student to develop mastery of reading in order to develop skilled reading. And when any one of those component skills, whether it's a piece of language comprehension or a piece of word recognition, when those are not taught to mastery on time and in conjunction with all other skills, we create, let me say that again, we create unskilled struggling learners. And then as the demand for more complex reading skills increase, um, as learners move from grade to grade, they fall further and further behind. So that chart you see on screen is about when students need to master certain pieces of learning how to read so that they can later read to learn. So when they fall further and further behind, they become victims of that provision gap. They weren't provided with the instruction that they needed to a level of mastery in order to be successful later on. And this becomes most evident around the third grade because that's when what students have put in front of them to read starts to shift from learning how to read to reading stuff in order to learn. So narrative stories give way to expository and technical text. And our learners sometimes are left feeling kind of like you did when I gave you that piece on metformin and asked you to, told you're gonna have a quiz on it, right? To read it and make sure you understood it. Any green thumbs in the room? Just shoot me a note on, on the chat if you have a, a green thumb, you love to garden. I grew up, um, with in a, in a in a black culture that where everyone had a backyard garden and so spending summers with my aunt vicky whose entire backyard was a garden that could feed 10 families um i, I learned how how to garden and enjoyed <laughs> enjoyed playing in the mud so i now live on the 40th floor of a, a high rise in downtown houston so my garden is in pots on the balcony. And if you know Houston, Texas, it's hot as blazes. In fact, it was, I think it was 94 today. So when my flowers don't bloom, I can't, I, I have to fix what I can control in the environment, right? I change the soil, I change the containers. Um, I have taken to, oh, a degree in horticulture. Thank you, Doug, make me feel like, you know, I know this much. I may call you later on, I have a question. Um, I have, because I travel, I use wine bottles. I have a lot of wine bottles. I fill them up with water and fertilizer when necessary. And I stuff them down into the soil of the pots so that when I'm gone for two or three days, it's sort of like a slow drip because there's no fountain out on my balcony. So I can't put in a drip system, right? I can control the things that I can control. And I have to find a way to address the things that I can fix, the sun or amount of sun they get by placement, the amount of shade they get, how much water I give them, how much fertilizer. I can't fix the plant. Think of your children as those plants. And when any group of learners don't bloom, when they're not learning, you restructure the environment, you reculture the school, you change the way you think about the children and what is required to teach them and your commitment to do that. You change 
um, the curriculum that you use, the methodology that you use, you restructure things about the school. You cannot change the child. You can't change their culture or, and you should not denigrate their language. As educators and leaders, you have the power, meritocracy, right? You have the power to create this change, standards in the environment. I encourage educators to lean on the words of Maya Angelou who wrote, do the best you can until you know better, then when you know better, do better. And so if I get some gardening advice over there from someone who knows how to make stuff grow, <laughs> In, in the extreme heat of Houston on a balcony with very little shade, I'll take that advice because then I'll know better so I can do better. All right, journal time again, one more minute, this time focusing on standards. Just like before, questions on the screen to think of are guiding question, who has mastery? How do standards apply to teaching with the goal of equity for you in your role? And how do standards apply to learning for your unserved and underserved learners? All right, I'm gonna give you one minute. Okay, there's our one minute. If you have a curiosity, a struggle, or an insight to share, please drop that in the chat. And you're okay, Joan, not to worry. Driving and trying to type, I'm a little concerned about that. Thank you, Bella. Yes, teach in a way that your kids will learn. Keep those coming. Like I said, I always go back and take a look at those, but for time's sake, I'm gonna move on. So our third indicator is impartiality. And impartiality is about equity of representation. Um, so uh, Dr. Lasher talked about um, or showed us the, the video clip, windows, mirrors, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. 
Okay, so sort of think about, I'll think about this along that same fr framework. Guiding question, who has representation? And when I think about representation, like the mirrors, right? I think about books like you see on screen and I just put two up as exemplars. One, the first book is called Crown. It's an ode to the fresh cut. And Crown is the story of a young black boy's visit to a black barber shop. And that is a black cultural experience that could only be authentically told by a black man. Now, as many times as I took my son to the barber shop, to a black barber shop, um, and as many times as I sat in that culture for a brief period of time while he got his hair cut until he was 11 and felt that he no longer needed mom to take him inside, he could go on his own. Um, I could not tell his story, right? That's the story that could only be authentically told by a black man who had that experience. The other book that I have on, this, on the screen, Separate is Never Equal. Um, I think of how a young Latina might feel when she reads that book. And, and Separate is Never, Never Equal is the story of Sylvia Mendez's experience as a young Latina when her parents won the Supreme Court case that challenged California's um, California school district's policies of segregated schools for Mexican-American children. And Mendez was before Brown versus Board of Education. There's a lot going on in our schools back then. And this is a story that is most authentically told by a Mexican author, the experience that would have that they would have had. Most of us, again, we've heard mirrors, windows, and sliding glass, glass doors in, in regards to literature. So the mirrors, we want to imagine how our children of color see themselves or don't see themselves represented in their textbooks. Um, as opposed to seeing themselves through the literature of Langston Hughes or Gary Soto. And it's just as important for children to see themselves accurately. And this is what impartiality is also about, to see themselves accurately in the social and natural sciences. So as an example, the number of black sciences, scientists and engineers that have created devices that make modern life convenient, like from irons to air conditioning, um, what about in this current time, getting students engaged by teaching the story of Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, who's the Black woman scientist behind Moderna's COVID vaccine, um, Ellen Ochoa, the first Latina to go into space. Now, I'm a recovering high school U.S. history teacher and American government teacher, um, and I could go into stuff like that for days, but I won't. Stay with me. I just wanted any content area teachers to know, I think about you. I feel you right? Because here we're focusing on equity and authenticity of representation. Two things to consider this time. One is how well curriculum and instruction accurately and appropriately represent the culture and history of all learners versus providing an other-centric interpretation and telling of other people's stories. So we want to make sure that all children have true windows into diverse cultures, that they have those sliding glass doors that they can walk through. Just keep in mind that it is the accuracy of representation that is so, so important. And then secondly, our second consideration 
is how well assessments accurately and appropriately consider the sociolinguistic culture of the learners as, a, as opposed to providing just a white Western linguistic sampling or white Western norming bias. When we consider, and, or excuse me, when we examine impartiality, we have to consider as well the disconnect that creates an added struggle when the content that is used or provided is not relevant to a learner's lived experience, like me in Dick and Jane, reading Dick and Jane. Students who feel devalued or disenfranchised are much less likely to engage in instruction. And we all know that a lack of engagement contributes significantly to student learning. Impartiality, this metric, impacts outcomes. If resources favor one group over another, if resources fail to tell the stories of some or inaccurately portray the stories or histories or contributions of a group, they are inequitable by the very definition of equity that we put into your backpack. Sometimes those examples are glaring. Others are very subtle. So I'm gonna give you another quiz of sorts. It's not really a quiz but stretch your thinking. Are you ready? I know I can't hear you. I wish I could. So on the screen are some language, are, are some language. On the screen are 12 words um, that might be in our language. And these are words that hold bias. You might not recognize the race, gender, or cultural bias that exists on this page, but I want you to take a second and read through these. And then if you have a curiosity, Go ahead and drop it in the chat. I know there's somebody who's going to wonder at least what one or two of those things mean or why there is bias in some of these words. Mankind. Yes, is that not gender biased? What about womankind? How about humanity instead? Cakewalk, there it is. Somebody's always got to ask about cakewalk. And I was, I was waiting for that one and I'll touch on stakeholder. So the term or the phrase cakewalk originated from a pre-US Civil War dance. So during slavery that was performed by slaves for other slaveholders on plantation grounds. There's a lot to that term. Um, what was the other one that was, the, oh, stakeholder. Um, is offensive, horribly offensive to indigenous Americans because a stakeholder was the white person who owned the stakes or control of the land. Um, and those stakeholders are the ones who took away land from indigenous Americans. Brown bag, so I actually, I even have a prop today, brown bag. Um, among black people, particularly at university, um, although it does not happen anymore. Um, but there was a, a, throughout much of our history, if you were darker than this brown bag, you were not going to be invited or allowed into a party. So there were actually what was called brown bag parties and there would be a brown paper bag at the door. And if your skin was darker than that brown bag, you were not going to get into the door. Um, Yes, yeah, stakeholders and alternative um, people with um, an interest. 
um, people who have a vested interest. There is not a single term that you can use to replace stakeholders. I have been searching for one and I've just had to, I've come to the realization that we have to explain it rather than use that term. Okay. All right. And yes, is used not only in higher ed all the time. My husband is in finance, um, and it's a term that's used routinely in finance, and they're struggling with it there. But there's a lot of work being done, not only in education to eliminate that term, but in medicine as well. So we'll see more of that. Keep your ears peeled. You're gonna you're gonna hear and see more about that that shift. Okay, you know what this slide means. This time focusing on impartiality, I'm gonna give you some time to uh, one minute to think about those three questions, the guiding question, then who's represented and how impartiality applies to learning for your unserved and underserved learners. One minute on the timer. Okay, curiosity, struggle, or insight, if you've got one, drop it in the chat. Yeah. Um, living in poverty, um, and I, this is a personal preference, I've stopped using the term poverty um, or impoverished and talk about students um, of low financial wealth, because even though they may not have a lot of stuff, tangible things, um, comforts in terms of like our, our creature comforts, um, they may have a wonderfully rich culture. They could have a wonderfully rich family life. And so we, rather than think sort of globally about these children of poverty, I just think of children of low financial wealth. Um, and one of the things that educators can understand or should understand is that those children have more grit and determination and have learned how to survive through things that many of us would just fall apart facing. And so respecting their strength and their grit, their determination, when they show up every single day, in spite of the fact that may not have, that they may not have running water, um, 
they may have a home environment that is infested with, with pests. Um, they may not have clean clothes or a bed to sleep in, but they're showing up for school every day and they're trying to learn something. And that should teach us a whole lot about our children. Okay. Um, I could talk all day. All right, and I'm gonna come back to, I'm seeing some really cool stuff in that, in that chat and hopefully I'll have some time to come back to, to more of it, but I am seeing some things that are giving me um, writing inspiration. So our fourth and our final indicator is asset allocation. And this one's a little funky, so listen carefully. Asset allocation is about constructive inequality. So our guiding question here is, have we created positive structural inequality? Have we created positive structural inequality? And here we consider how equitably are curriculum assets chosen and then allocated to result in educational opportunity and academic excellence for every child. So in your schools, in your classrooms, have you put into place structures, policies, processes, board members, I'm definitely talking to you here because you are the policy people, right? Have you put into place these things that are unequal in order to create equity for underserved and unserved learners? Do children who need the most explicit and rigorous instruction receive what they need, even if that is disproportionate, that it is much more than what other children receive? And do you do that so that every child can experience academic excellence? In my book, I, I repeatedly touch on um, three things, doing harm, allowing harm, and denying resources three practices that define what I call dysteachia. Doing harm, allowing harm, and denying resources. If you're engaging, if you're examining asset allocation, if you are restructuring your environments to create positive structural inequality, you aren't harming children. You're not allowing harm to children but you cannot profess a commitment to equity without targeted, targeted, constructive inequality. Think about it this way. If my slide comes up, there you go. Sometimes you have to stack the deck. No, back to that slide, there we go. Sometimes you have to stack the deck in order to level the playing field, right? Here's where it really shows how well or how poorly we have done in this area. So this is something um, that has disproportionately impacted our culturally and linguistically diverse learners, unserved and underserved learners. And that is the topic or the idea of learning loss. And I say of the many things that we learned from the pandemic, many of the things that were introduced um, as an education community, man, we latched on to that idea of learning loss. And I say kindly, not to offend anyone who has used the term before, that it's a misnomer. 
when I'm speaking very bluntly, I might say, nah, that's a lie. It's a way that we have been able to blame the learner or blame the virus for a lack of gains or for what we are perceiving as negative gains that marginalized learners are overwhelmingly demonstrated. And it's an idea that we have to destroy because our children, yes, they lost instructional time. But I wanna be crystal clear. There is no such thing as learning loss. When you learned two plus two, when you learned your name, when you learned how to get from home to work, just because you haven't done it in a week or two weeks or three weeks, you don't forget. There's no such thing as learning loss. There's a loss of previously imagined or false trajectories of literacy and numeracy skills based on a previously imagined or hoped for future. What we are seeing is called academic stagnation. And that's a lack of activity, a lack of growth, or a lack of progress. Every single learner still has every skill that was ever taught to mastery. And remember indicator number two, which is standards, right? Who has mastery? If learners appear to regress, they had never mastered the skills to begin with. And if they had never mastered the skills, it means that they were not taught to mastery. Students don't lose what they've learned. If children seem to have lost what was taught the prior year, it wasn't taught, at least not to them. And mastery learning should be the goal of everything that we teach, especially, especially when it comes to literacy and numeracy skills. So examining our practices through the lens of those four equity indicators, we go through this process to toss out things that are not proven to work with the children that are in our classrooms. We get rid of ineffective practices and we replace those with content and methods that are proven to work for the children that we are serving, the children in your community. And that is whether we like the methods or not. This eliminates that existence of unserved and underserved learners because we are teaching the children that we have, not teaching the children that we want to have. And by doing that, we eliminate provision gaps. So I'm hoping at this point, you can kind of see how these four, in equity, inter four equity indicators are intertwined. That's hard to say. Every single indicator is great on its own, but there's a certain synergy when all four come together that's powerful in changing systems. So one last journal write, you know the drill. Um, the guiding question, have we created positive structural inequality? How might asset allocation for equity impact teaching or leading with a goal of equity for you, specifically you and your role? And how might structural inequity impact learning for your unserved or underserved learners? All right. One minute.
Okay, if you've got a curiosity, struggle, or insight, drop those into the chat. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go back to, um, there's a question, a curiosity. How can we know the words are so offensive? Talking about those 12 words, it does become overwhelming. Some of that, you know, it's not like we can give you a list. This, this would be like the worst vocabulary lesson ever, right? Here's a list of 100 words. Never use these again. Professional learning is about taking bits and pieces, baby steps along this pathway to cultural competence. And so it takes time. Every once in a while, I notice if I slip and say um, students at risk, a term that I, I, I hate and I realized um, as my file was being read, it was, it was still in there um, because no child should ever be at risk. If we're doing the right things, there are no children at risk um, because we're doing what's right. But we, if we become, if we are cognizant um, that we need to change, that we need to work on um, our own implicit biases, our vocabulary, and we start to become more sensitive and empathetic to all of the children, all of the communities that we represent and communities that we serve, we get there. No one expects you to do it overnight. Okay, as we examine teaching and learning, and we're looking at this through a lens of equity, those four equity indicators, we can start to see, as you are demonstrating um, by what's in the chat, the impact of choices, the decisions that we make, the impact of those decisions on children, the impact of the instruction that's being provided. When I think back to Mrs. Gowdy, and I think about the choices she made and how that impacted me that some 52 years later um, that I remember that. What kind of legacy is that to her? Now I happen to know she's still alive. Um, I don't live in California anymore, um, but I did hear that a speech that I had given back in, in my hometown, a keynote that I did, there was someone in the audience that was friends with her and let her know and then they let me know she's still alive. She remembers you. Um, it just is, it's amazing and touching to me. And they said that she was really impressed by um, the fact that I remembered her so fondly and what she did, that that had that impact. Think about the impact of, you know, our example on language, the impact of language on our children, the impact of the language that we use and the language of sociocultural language or their heritage language that they come to school with and if that is not used as a bridge to the school English, um, which is where we typically provide learning, how that impacts their trajectory of learning. And it's so important that we focus on our unserved, underserved, culturally and linguistically diverse learners trajectories of learning, primarily because they are the ones who have suffered academically because of those comorbidities that they have and having a teaching staff, and this is across America, 85% um, of elementary school teachers are white women. 85% of students in elementary schools are not white females, right? So having that representation is important. But as I told you before, Mrs. Gowdy was a white woman. 
She didn't have to be a black woman in order to have empathy and understanding to do what was right for me. So think about that. We think about the impact of, of meritocracy in terms of the commitment to education, um, the impact of standards to equality of outcomes. Think about the impact of impartiality to representation um, of learners and on, on, on learners and their desire to remain in school because they see themselves, their culture, their people, their education as relevant and worthy. What about the impact of asset allocation on leveling that playing field while doing no harm to any group of children? In the sciences of teaching and learning, the impact of what might seem trivial has ramifications beyond any one school year. When we do these things right, when we have equity of instruction, we impact life outcomes for the benefit of the child. When we do not have equity, it is to the demise of the child. And so as I close, and then we're going to turn it over to um, Sarah Clark, who's going to lead our Q&A. Just a reminder, I opened this workshop by greeting you with the words of the Maasai, Kesarian Inkara, how are the children? So in their culture, the only acceptable response to that statement is when all the children are well. And so that, my message, is what we should strive to attain, is that all the children are well. One last thing before we switch over to Q&A, um, last time in the chat, if you will, a key insight, just one little thing from today that you will take with you. Um, I appreciate that. I wanna say I appreciate you and your time. You all were wonderfully interactive in the chat. Um, as you share, again, know that you could be, you've already inspired me. I think I've got four or five blog posts off the things that, that you've written there. Um, but you might also be inspiring somebody else who's in this group and reading something that you wrote. So these are all links to me on social, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. I am at Almitra Berry. Um, on YouTube, our, the channel, um, the Equity Clinic is the name of the channel, and you can find that at A.L. Berry Consulting, and then on the web, our website, alberryconsulting.com. Um, sales rep for Teacher Creative Materials, who is the person who carries my book for bulk purchases in Ohio, is Tina Sindelar. Her information is down at the bottom left-hand corner of that slide, so that's where you would get her. Um, of course, if you would just like a single copy, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you buy books, everywhere you buy books are sold. Um, like, follow, share, subscribe, all that good stuff, and with that,